Hello, my friends, and welcome to The Natural High, which is, of course, a podcast dedicated to the pursuit of happiness in all its glorious forms. This week, I have the great pleasure of speaking to Jorge Ferrer. Jorge was a professor of psychology for more than 20 years at California Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco, where he also served as chair of the Department of East-West Psychology. He's the author of several acclaimed books and dozens of articles on psychology, education and alternative intimate relationships. He's also served as an advisor to the United Nations. He's just released his new book, Love and Freedom, Transcending Monogamy and Polyamory. It's a fascinating, controversial and eye-opening subject, which is relevant to all of us, because the idea of love, intimacy and sexual desire is central to most of our lives, but in practice, are we totally satisfied? Are we optimising our intimate relationships, romantic and otherwise? Does monogamy grant us the freedom to sate our sexual desires? Or is it just a broken, outdated relationship model? It's an absolutely amazing discussion with a truly lovely gentleman. And so please join me as I once again wade blindly and blithely through unknown waters with genuine curiosity and an open heart. If you type love and freedom, transcending monogamy and polyamory into Amazon, you'll find Jorge's compelling new book. And you can find out loads more about him and reach out to him by going to the naturalhighclub.com forward slash polyamory. That's P-O-L-Y-A-M-O-R-Y. Finally, if you like what you're hearing, please leave a review on whichever platform you're listening to this podcast. Enjoy the show. Natural high. Before we start, I'd like you to indulge me for a second because you're speaking to me from your home in Ibiza, right? Yes. Uh, it's a truly beautiful place. I haven't been there for many years, but tell me how things are there now. Do, is there? A, do you feel free and liberal to move around again? Does Ibiza have its traditional magic back, or is it still suffering because of COVID? <laughs> yes, um, this last summer was a bit more normal than the prior one. Uh, two summers ago, everything was closed, but in a way, it was like a beautiful summer because. Uh, it was like a Ibiza that uh, didn't exist since the 60s or 70s here. So there was like no tourism, no people. So wow. on the one hand, uh, that magic of the discourse, of the dance, of what Ibiza is famous for, was not there, even though, of course, there was private parties and houses, and but the nature part was enhanced, you know, like uh, what in beaches, like as we haven't been in my, in my whole life, I could see those beaches. This summer, we got more tourism again. I uh, was a lot of tourists again. And, uh, and not this, there was some discourse until 1 p.m., but a lot of private parties, of course, and things like that, you know. So the, the magic never left Ibiza. It's such a magical place. But definitely, like, uh, two summers ago, it was quite remarkable. It was quite remarkable. It was like this, you know, yeah, it was paradise. Really, yeah. <laughs> I'm more into nature these days than big parties, <laughs> so, so my <laughs> perception is biased. But 
<laughs> I know exactly how you feel. I'm sure people are going to party. They were like, that summer totally sucked, you know? And like, that was the best summer, you know? <laughs> wow. Yeah, it's, it's strange, isn't it? You have these sort of guilty feelings because there were some parts of the, the pandemic which actually were, you know, which they sort of lent themselves to more sort of enjoyable and clement environments. Nature feeling more prominent again and not so many people around. It was, um, yeah, I, I found there have been some positives. It's a perfect time to be speaking to you because you've just published your new book, which is called Love and Freedom, Transcending Monogamy and Polyamory. And I think that it's a fascinating subject for so many people, scholars and non-scholars. And I, I want to deep dive into the book, of course, because I've just read it. And I find it very accessible and compelling for such a scholarly work. I found it was a real page, page turner. Um, but I suppose it would be good to start with to get some context on how you got to this stage of your life. Tell me something about your early life and your early experiences and how they might have shaped your decision to take this path in your life. How did you become this glorious specimen that I see in front of me today? <laughs> Thank you, Oliver. You're you are very generous with your words. Um, what I would say is like in terms of my early experiences is like, um, I can say two things. Um, one, like uh, I believe like um, my brother and I were very lucky to have uh, what I would say uh, more than good enough mother. <laughs> I think it's important to give credit where credit is due and mothers go first, <laughs> especially the good ones. And uh, of course, all of them are good ones in the sense that they did their best they could and they, they, they were able. And um, at the same time, like uh, our mother was someone who, who was always available, but was not invasive, allow us to explore the world, but whenever we need her, she was there. So I think that created like a, a baseline of trust and, uh, and confidence and like a sense of like uh, adventurous safety and like the sense that you can always come back to secure base as attachment theorists would say. I kind of like secure attachment style to some extent. I'm not secure attachment style is perfect, but, but you, know, you, you know what I mean. And then the other thing that I think was important is that um, as I grew up like a... Uh, my parents, uh, you know, they had like quarrels for money and other matters, you know, but they were not jealous people, you know, they never had, uh, that was never an issue in my household, you know, none of them had issues about jealousy or things like that, that, would, that did not exist in my household as we grew up, you know, so I think that was another experience. And the last one I will mention that uh, I've shared sometimes is that uh, when I had my first steely girlfriend in Barcelona, you know, uh, was walking with her in the streets of Barcelona and suddenly like this kind of flash of kind of insight or concern or came to me it was like, wow, the fact that I, I, I love this person so much and she's loving me so much and it's such a wonderful relationship means that uh, according to what culture has taught me that I cannot love anyone else in the world in sensuous or sexual ways, you know, and also cannot be loved that way by more than seven, you know, billion people uh, living in that time in, in the world, you know, and it, it struck me as a delirium of cosmic proportion. It's like, why are we limiting our love so much, you know, just a single person that, um, in those frequencies? So that was the beginning of like uh, many decades of exploration of uh, alternative relationships, uh, both non-monogamy and also explored times of monogamy, I had times of celibacy, it was like a whole beginning. But I would say that those three experiences were kind of foundational for, for the beginning of that exploration. 
I mean, a lot of people don't even think outside of the box of monogamy. It's so ingrained in our culture. It's so ingrained in our society. Did your parents lead an unconventional lifestyle in that respect to make you think about it? <laughs> not at all. Not, yeah, not at all. The, the word monogamous, married, although... Um, you know, I always suspected that my father was kind of sometimes cheating my mom, you know, and uh, as it was quite common, like uh, in Europe and in Spain in those times, and it still is. <laughs> I mean, look at the statistics, it's, it's pretty amazing, the amounts of cheating that goes on uh, in so-called monogamous couples and marriages. So I think that was like, uh, you know, it's, uh, at that time, of course, like men were cheating much more than women. Today, things are more level up. <laughs> but uh, but still, uh, when I talk with them, like uh, many years after, you know, when I came out of the closest as a, as a kind of polyamorous person at some point, although now I don't identify myself with being poly, but at some point I came back to Barcelona, I was in California, I talked with my mom about all this, and she told me, oh, my God, that's wonderful. Like, uh, I think if your father and I had known about this, we could have done it. Uh, and she was, like, super chill. And then she said, like, you know, uh, I'm not jealous. And I know, I know your father would, in the summers, you probably would have, like, some lovers. I never felt he had a parallel relationship. That might have been an issue in terms of finances and other things. But, but you know, in, in that perspective, she had internalized some patriarchal, you know, tropes, uh, like, uh, oh, that's what men do, you know? Men are gonna do this at some point and it's okay, it's what men do, you know? And for my father's uh, side, I talked with him, he shared with me about his affairs and he had like some kind of humility in his eyes. He was almost crying because uh, I, felt, I felt that I, in a way when I shared with him the, the transparent way I was doing that, I felt that there was a place deep down in him that he would have wanted to do it that way not cheating, but he was not educated, he didn't have the resources, you know, there was no knowledge about that even possibility. People were either married, monogamous, or, you know, or single. <laughs> yep. Yeah, it's so true. I mean, as you say uh, in the book, there's no adultery without monogamy. That's right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, in a way, like uh, adultery... It's like um, when you move outside a monocentric paradigm, adultery becomes like that, kind of like that ghost uh, that we thought we saw in the dark when we were all kids, you know, and then someone brings a light on and we realize that there's no ghost. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. I love that image. The, the strange thing about this is you are so far down this journey or you're so evolved where it comes to thinking about modes of intimate relationships. I don't think many people have even thought about life outside of monogamy. I, I didn't even know about polyamory until I moved to California five years ago. I hadn't even heard the term. Um, and But but you're so involved with it. I think so, so, so many people are still thinking inside the box. But when I read your book, I realized how huge this was because it is relevant to everybody. Sex, romance, intimacy, and love. They're central notions and central drivers in all, most of our lives. But how many of us can honestly say that we're 100% sexually satisfied and that all of our intimate needs are met every day i really think that's a really low number and we and, and then i realized how complicated this whole subject is because we are constrained by so many social cultural historical and other factors when it comes to relationships exactly that's uh that's part of the challenge you know in a way like uh, many people uh even people you know that 
started monogamously in the relationship, they start exploring kind of an open relationship after a number of years of being married and uh, in which sexual habituation has kicked in. Sexual habituation is like the you know, biological tendency in all mammals that uh, the, the more you have uh, sexual uh, encounters with the same human being or the same mate, sexual libido is going to go down. That's kind of inescapable. Uh, that we need to accept that that's like a, a biological fact. Uh, and that's one of the things, there are things we could do about that, you know, like uh, transorgasmic sex. But one of the things that uh, people explore is these open relationships. For many couples that they are called monogamish or, um, you know, new monogamous, you know, and that's what they do. Like they open the relationship because uh, there are sex, certain sexual needs that uh, their partner doesn't feel out. And, uh, and then they want to experience them and they found like the level of trust and depth within the partnership after many years of being together, for example, and love still being there, that they can allow each other this kind of like free passes, so to speak. Of course, like uh, polyamorous relationships are a bit more complex than that because they don't reduce to sex. They also involve mostly kind of uh, more intimate, like affectionate, even romantic feelings. And that's also where things can get more challenging for many people. I would say that many monogamish people are not polyamorous in that regard. They normally give each other free passes on the sexual level, you know, when traveling, you know, and so forth, you know. But uh, the, the polyamorous uh, in, inclusion of love and romance that also can bring new levels of kind of like threat and uh, insecurity. So my sense is like, uh, I see also clients, you know, couples and individuals like dealing with these issues. And normally like uh, the ideal of course, is like uh, when people open their relationship from, from a place of like, you know, fulfillment, <laughs> from a place of really, I mean, no relationship is perfect as you pointed out, but you know, there's good enough relationships. It's not like super challenges, you know, if you open the relationship with a lot of challenges that are very deep, uh, it's, you could add extra challenges. I think it's better to work first on the challenges to some extent and then open the relationship if you feel called then. But yeah, it's, um, I know as you pointed out, it's like, how we live in this monocentric normative culture, you know, for centuries, very likely millennia of like mono, monocentric kind of condition, you know, from like Christianity, the Roman from which the Western culture came from, you know, the industrial revolution. I mean, all these factors, you know. So um, so it's uh, it's very hard for many, many people to think outside the box, as you put it, you know, but more and more people are being pushed to do, to do so because um, it's like uh, the relationship as they were taught, the, this kind of like myth of romantic love, you know, you find your soulmate and you live happily ever after. People realize today that that's not true, that doesn't work. Uh, and perhaps before when people live much less longer, uh, less longevity and the division of labor, there was some system that was kind of working to some extent, even though most men were cheating or many men were cheating and some women too. But uh, but today it's, uh, it's a different panorama. So we're all giving, I think, baby steps, exploring new alternative paradigms of relationship that fit more the needs of our times. That's really interesting. Yeah, of course, things change over time. And it's why we talk, you know, disparagingly sometimes about people who are fanatical about ancient scriptures like the Bible and the Quran, people who follow those literally, even though thousands of years have passed since they've been written. 
Um, with with monogamy, you, you, you're very careful in the book to point out that you don't see any form of intimate relationship as better, superior, inferior to another. But at the same time, you, you talk about socially enforced monogamy, the crisis of modern relationships, the origins of jealousy and monogamy are intimately connected. And another really great soundbite, the failure to sustain a long-term emotionally or erotically fulfilling life in the context of sexually exclusive bonds frequently leads to a profound sense of disillusionment. Um, why do we need to move away from monogamy or why do we need to look outside of the box? What are the biggest problems? What is this crisis of modern relationships? If you could expand upon that. Mm. Yes. Yes. Uh, for me, as you know, like uh, you have read the book, like uh, and you pointed out now, it's like um, I'm about promoting relational freedom, the capability to, to really like choose one relationship style uh, increasingly free from biological, evolutionary, social, historical, religious conditionings. I think that's the way to go, you know, because the problem is because uh, in the book, there is a more critical outlook towards productivity as well, you know, uh, because we have received that simple monogamy for so many centuries and millennia. So that can, so today monogamy creates more coercion, external and internal you know, for our, our relational freedom, for our relational choices. If it was the other way around, I think there would be in the book much more criticism towards like the polynormativity or polycentrist or poly paradigm, you know. But that being said, uh, my sense is that the important is like uh, is to really be attuned to one uh, developmental needs, you know, what is truth in a couple, you know, uh, to realize that people change, that, uh, that you and your partner are probably not the same now as they were when you fell in love. And you will not be the same like 10 years from now, five years from now. So it's important to be attuned to that uh, and not to get attached to structures to work in the past when the, and perhaps that is stifling for growth. And at the same time, realize that people have different dispositions, you know. There are some more people who are much more monogamous and people who are more polyamorous, you know. And at the same time, as I move into this more novogamous territory beyond the binary, I also make these points like, well, we also have a tremendous inner diversity within, you know. Maybe many people are very monogamous in their minds or in their hearts, but they are sexually poly. <laughs> they have a, a lot of like a polysexual desires, you know. And also other ways around, I know like a very famous poly researcher who believes in polyamory and, uh, and she really is like, you know, like, a, you know, kind of an advocate for this paradigm. And when she mates, she says that she has, wants to be monogamous, you know, so is to realize is that uh, we can be in any relational paradigm for the right or wrong reasons, you know, from reasons of deficit, conditioning, like a coercion, internal or external, or for reasons that are more growth promoting, like kind of like more, more free and like less socially or historically or religiously conditioned, you know. So that's kind of like the line I want to, I want to explore here, you know, that, that resurrects the, to explore the relationships through all those different lenses. Okay, yeah, it's fascinating. I want to talk about the practical implications, but I did um, pick up on the term which I think you coined of novogamy, N-O-V-O-gamy. Novo, new? Yes. Um, tell, can you explain that as succinctly as you would like? Yes. <laughs> I know it's not the most simple of concepts. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I think one easy way for people to start understanding what novogamy is about is to look at con the contemporary transgender movement. Like 10 years ago, almost no one would even think that there was 
something either beyond or in between being a man or a woman. You were either a man or you were either a woman. The transgender people and movement have taught us, you know, through their life experience and uh, that there is a lot of ways to be in between and beyond and so forth, you know. So in the same way, I'm doing the same with the relationship binary, monogamy and polyamory. I call nobogamy to the territory that opens up beyond the binary. And uh, that kind of territory can be opened up in a variety of ways. And uh, in the book, as you know, like uh, offer like, like nine different pathways with a lot of examples, you know. But just to give one example, I already mentioned here the one of like the intrapersonal diversity, you know. One can be monogamous here and polyamorous uh, sexually. So are you monogamous or polyamorous? Depends <laughs> to which center within yourself you ask. <laughs> yeah, As right. a whole, you are probably both, <laughs> yeah. right? But then uh, also, also we alluded here like uh, about this developmental fluidity, right? That at different moments of our lives, from our adolescence to young adulthood to maturity, we may have different changing needs and developmental pools. So perhaps at certain age, I'm more monogamous and later I'm more poly and I want to end my life in a poly family or just married with my sweetheart. It really depends. And there is no universal or paradigmatic sequence, you know? Um, some people think, well, you start poly and then you settle down. That's kind of like the, you know, the monocentric story narrative, you know, and then that's it, you know? Well, that's not the case, you know, we change our needs, you know? And then also there is the, the question of context, you know, like uh, some people are very monogamous at home and, uh, and then they go for one week to the Burning Man Festival or the Boom Festival or to certain places like uh, certain clubs or parties and there they are polyamorous. So are you monogamous or polyamorous depending on where, <laughs> depending on where, you know? So, um, I can go on and on, like uh, different people can awaken different dispositions. Like uh, some people may awaken my more monogamous tendencies and other people my most polyamorous tendencies. As it's not a question of loving more or less. The person I love most in my life who passed away two years ago, uh, we had an open relationship for the last the whole two years that we were together for contextual factors. She was coming out of like an asexual marriage and so forth. So, uh, and uh, was the person I've loved more in my life. And we were like poly, that's on the one hand. And the other hand also called nobogamy to another uh, path within within the territory. Also like there is some people that they may, they may want to, uh, uh, they feel that their identity, relational identity, is not monogamous, is not, is, is, excuse me, is not monogamous, is not polyamorous. And then they, uh, they feel, well, it's, uh, it's something different, you know? So I'm offering this term for those people who may want or need a term to know, to name what they are living, you know? Because it could be very oppressive. I uh, experienced a lot of personal oppression, like uh, for uh, more than 10, 15 years, and people, are you mono or poly, you know? Right. Are you monogamous or polyamorous? It's like, well, I'm neither, you know, it really depends. And so I found myself, well, it's good to have a term, you know, to say, well, I'm novogamous, you know, and then you can explain what's that. For some people that can work and for other people, uh, more labels and uh, can become more ideological boxes. So it could be also great not to have any label at all. And uh, so I'm just really opening opening all this up, all this territory as much as has been able, you know, so that people can really like uh, within all that territory situate themselves and, and walk the path or paths that makes more sense to them. That's really interesting because of course, you know, the idea of polyamory, when I first think about it, I think about relational freedom, but that can be very constricting as well, can't it? 
polyamory could in some ways become become constricting if there are those expectations of you as a polyamorous person you know just those labels as you mentioned like they can be dangerous they can be constricting Navogamy uh, allows you to move between yes yes in one of the chapters of the book like on the one hand like i you know i critique both like not only this kind of monogamous ideologies but also polyamorous ideologies no there's a new polynormativity emerging that critiques monogamous people as kind of hypocritical, they haven't really opened themselves to the essence of love that is inclusive and it's free, you know, and, uh, and you, you know, if you have jealousy, you're a bad person or, or something like that, you need to open into compassion. And uh, it's like this kind of like new thing, like many poly people look down at monogamous people and the other way around, of course, monogamous people look down at poly people, you know, and I found this kind of pointless, you know. Uh, research tell us that uh, both monogamous and polyamorous individuals and couple, they share very um, similar rankings in terms of psychological health, relational well-being, sexual satisfaction, you know. So that kind of ideologies, you know. On the other hand, with the term novogamy, as I also discussed in the book, there's also a danger with the term. There's the danger that people would situate the term being novogamous as superior to the monogamous or polyamorous. And I address this pitfall in the book because that would be counter what I'm trying to do. And I'm aware that when you call something novo new, that creates kind of like a split or an, a polarity with the old, new, old, right? So that's something that I'm very aware of. And, and that's why I also invite people to create their own terms, you know, don't go with this term if you don't resonate. It, you know, I, I chose this term, I started thinking hard about it because it's easy to pronunciate. <laughs> Novogamos, novogami versus like, you know, I'm kind of like a transgamos or something like that. Right. You know? But um, <laughs> but the important thing is that people feel, you know, like it's a term that resonate with and that allows them to the freedom, you know, to, to walk their path, you know, and also to answer those questions, social questions, like are you monogamous or you are polyamorous when you actually don't feel any of those labels apply to you? Mm. Amazing. So, so the more I'm reading this book, the more I'm thinking how many ways that sexual and romantic repression can manifest in society. If you think about it, like how many social ills are caused by this pent up sexuality that we feel, this sort of frustration over, you know, not optimizing our intimate lives. Like I just felt that this could be really massive in terms of the way the planet moves forward. Absolutely. And uh, it has like a... It has like very strong social implications because uh, in a way what has been happening, you know, in the trajectory of the West, you know, and many other cultures as well is that, uh, you know, we have kind of like a, kind of like style errors from everyday life, you know, like uh, errors is something we, we, we tap into when we dance uh, wildly or when we have sex, you know. But the erotization of everyday life, I think, is very important and has very strong social political implications. Because the more erotic is life, uh, the less you need. You are more nurtured by your own inner resources of life, and and you need to buy less things <laughs> to begin with. <laughs> you 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 become less a consumerist uh, because you are more nurtured by that energy of life. That in a way is kind of uh, it's kind of like um, you know like the most creative energy of the cosmos and reality coming into human reality, you know, it's the energy wow. of life. Uh, I see um, a connection between that energy of sexuality and that kind of like a primordial energy of Eros that, you know, from the beginning kind of spun from the Big Bang to, to this tremendous diversification of life that we experience in the planet Earth, you know. Mm. 
And then on the other hand, after that, we have also exile people today are learning sex through porn, for example, and especially young people. But, uh, you know, there's, there's a book called Cheap Sex that is not a very good book, uh, but uh, he calls about the porn of, pornographication of society. And it's true, if you look at the statistics of Pornhub, for example, 41 billion hits like, like in 2009. It's like, wow. it's tremendous across the globe, you know? So the, the, the sad thing of this is that very, especially young people and younger generations are learning like a sexuality through this kind of very uh, hypergenitalized, yep. mechanical, dissociated way to be sexual. Mm-hmm. And that's not very erotic, <laughs> as most women tell men when they go there with those pants. It's like, well, um, I, I think you, you probably are a good fucker, but this is not very erotic. <laughs> Let's do something more slow. There's something different here. <laughs> is pornography an unhealthy thing in your mind then? I mean, I, I, is it not some a way in which people can vent their sexuality when they are sexually frustrated? Or do you think that it is generally unhealthy because of those images that it, it conjures? Yes. Yeah, this is, this is a very important question, uh, especially because of the pornographication of society. And uh, so I, w- I would make distinctions here. On the one hand, like uh, there is different types of porn. Mm. There is patriarchal porn that we all know about, and it all will ends with the man ejaculating uh, in the woman, and that's over. And uh, if the, the sexual pleasure is focused on the, on the penis and so forth, you know. Uh, and there is uh, different types of porn, gender by done by women's producers and female directors with different types of sensitivity, you know? So that's on the one hand. On the other hand, it's like uh, things always are contextual. Um, and let's give you what two examples, and they're real examples. Um, uh, it's one woman, like for example, that uh, she was very sexually repressed uh, for a variety of reasons, religious reasons, educational reasons, you know? So. She didn't feel uh, empowered enough to engage into sexual relationships with men. A female friend gave her like some porn videos uh, done by women, sex, you know, porn, porn producers and directors. And watching those videos uh, helped these women to rediscover her sexuality, learn about sexuality in ways that in everyday life she couldn't, and feel more empowered to go and meet men and have sex with men. On the one hand, uh, therefore, Pornography could be helpful. Many couples also use pornography in selective ways to rekindle their sexual life, to be more sexy, to learn new sexual desires. Many couples actually, they open the relationship because after watching pornography, for example, they realize, hmm, maybe we're not as um, heterosexual as we thought. You know, mm-hmm. uh, in yeah. pornography, there is a lot of, you know, trios and orgies and that kind of weaken like dispositions. And it's like, well, maybe we're not as heterosexual. Maybe I would like to have like an exploration with someone of my own gender, for example. These are like positive things about pornography. On the other hand, like I've had friends, for example, who use so much porn in a way that was kind of compensatory and like uh, for frustrations or or in their personal life. And and they got like... um, addicted to porn, although this term is problematized today by many authors, but I think they, they were using porn, let's put it this way, they were using porn in a way that was very debilitating, was corroding their own confidence, and also no one would compare to those you know, uh, in, the, in, the, in the porn. Yeah. So there was like this sense, like, uh, uh, and his personal relational life was a disaster in part for this reason. So like everything, pornography can be used and misused, could be an educational tool, an emancipatory tool, could be a slavery, a slavery tool, could be something that could be very damaging. So we need to be very discerning here. 
Thanks for the question. It's, yeah, I don't I don't deal with this topic in the book, but it's very important. Uh, it's a fantastic answer with many nuances, as as I should have expected. Um, it's a brilliant answer. Thank you. Um, so I want to get now into the practical applications and implications <laughs> of of non monogamy because. Um, <laughs> Another central theme in the book is jealousy. And I quote from the book that the fear of being jealousy, the fear of being displaced by another person in a valued relationship seems central to all forms of jealousy, not only romantic ones. That fear can quickly convert into anger and at times too often even violent rage. Now, um, and then further, further on in the book, you talk about how as jealousy dissolves, universal compassion and unconditional love become more easily available to the individual. Now, it's a that's a wonderful end point. But I, well, yeah, let, let's bring it down to street level. Me and my wife have an amazing relationship. Uh, it, it gets better all the time. We've, we're closer and closer all the time. And we do, con- we have, we consider ourselves to be a modern couple and have mm-hmm. regularly discussed the concept of polyamory and non-monogamy and how it might work for us. Mm-hmm. Um, there are obvious upsides, many of which you've already talked about in the podcast, but the conversation always ends up with overwhelming feelings of insecurity. And I wonder in practice how hard it is to break through that barrier of jealousy I'm not sure that I would ever be able to do it um, in practice and even though I want my wife to have the most incredible life ever I have this innate feeling of I suppose it's patriarchal possessiveness and all of these different feelings come up but I wonder if you could talk about your your life as well and what you know what your life what your intimate relationships look like and and how what sort of challenges you face Are, are you not a jealous person anymore or do you have to work at it I know you talk about Mudita and compersion and sympathetic joy as well. Maybe you could just talk about all of that. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big question in going many directions. Uh, it's a great question. Uh, well, um, I mean, starting for myself, uh, right now um, I'm not in relationship with anyone. Like uh, as I mentioned before, like uh, the love of my life passed away two years ago. And then since then, like uh, had just one encounter uh, for the last two years, like was healing for me sexually. But for the time being, I've been in a place of like uh, kind of like a really like uh, extending horizontally with kind of love through friendships and connections. You know, I have some friends in which they would, could call they would be poly affectionate, you know, in the sense that it would be like a, a lot of affection and physical contact couldn't sleep together but there is no sexual energy movement or there is no sexual intercourse so they're like and this is also important many polyamorous relationships are not they're not sexual there could be like poly polyaffectivity uh, polyaffectionate you know so that's something also that is important to correct because the perce- social perception of polyamory is that is very sex driven yeah. and sex obsessed and sex centered you know and that's very important so, so in a way i feel I'm, I'm living now a little of a poly life on the affectionate level that includes physicality and, uh, and cuddling and, and connection uh, but no no sex um as i'm doing my own healing you know on on, on the grief and uh, all that. But at the moment, I haven't felt the pull. I haven't felt the pull to do so. Um, before that, um, yeah, uh, for 20, 25 years, I did different types of relationship, more totally polyamorous and also some monogamous relationship. So I lived both paradigms. I felt that's what also gave me the first sense of like, wow, I can live both monogamy and polyamory without serious fears of conflict. That therefore, it feel, gives me the freedom to choose it situates me beyond the binary. So that's one of the personal insights for that kind of like new paradigm I'm proposing, you know. But in my times that they were more poly, um, the model I gravitated to normally uh, was like having one primary partner, what is called hierarchical 
polyamory. One primary partner, and then we had like different lovers, and she also had like different connections. And um, in all those cases, in my experience, um, uh, the main you know primary relationships I had, um, we had such a deep sense of trust and strength in the bond, and that uh, we also, uh, for biographical reasons, had not um, a trauma or a wounding around. Uh, you know, like jealousy or rivalries. So we could move there quite easily. I'm sorry to interrupt. Yes, yes. Um, the partner that you're referring to, had she enjoyed and experienced polyamorous relationships or non-monogamous relationships before or was she new to it? My, my last partner, that was her first time because she had been married for you most of her yeah. life. Yes, and uh, she had a son and uh, she, she had been wanting uh, that kind of sexual diversification, but her husband... We didn't allow that so she was kind of like uh kind of like in this situation so uh it was very delicate and uh you know we did our best to to respect uh what's their heart and we moved very slowly and transparently with the husband and they were in therapy it was i think it was done as best as we could do it you know and still you know uh, there's always hard feelings there that are inevitable in the situations uh so um but uh for other people like yeah my sense is like um I don't know, like uh, the more the more things like jealousy has like different layers, right? Has like a biographical dimensions, has cultural dimensions, and also has evolutionary dimensions. Jealousy can really, you know, drive people mad, you know, like uh, because there's very strong forces that are not even your own, uh, that are kind of from the species, you know, from hundreds of thousands of years, you know, like uh, that uh, your biographical wounding or your biographical challenge or whatever you want to call it opens for those very strong energies, you know. So it's really important to be aware of that. And uh, because many people also punish themselves of being so jealous. And uh, it's important to know there are structural reasons, cultural, historical, but also evolutionary tendencies. There's no one that don't, don't carry them to some extent. We are yeah. human beings. We carry from that same past, you know. So I think that brings immediately like a more compassionate outlook towards that. What doesn't mean that uh, especially when jealousy is affecting your life in a way that uh, you cannot keep a partner because you are a controlling a person that no one can withstand being with you and you, you invade her privacy or or even worse, you know, you know, there's some kind of abuse or verbal or even physical, then of course it's very important that you work on that. You work on that for your own sake, but also for you in the sake of the partners you are going to be with. And the working of jealousy is challenging, but it's possible. Uh, in the book, I offer a practice based on uh, the contemplative um, uh, practice of Buddhists uh, called Mudita, sympathetic joy. It's about really deciding the well-being, you know, for all sentient beings. And you start with yourself always. You continue with your partner. And then uh, you extend that sympathetic joy. And it's a structured practice that I explain in the book to also third people that your partner might might be interested in or, or something like that. It's a very counterintuitive practice uh, because we have learned that... Uh, to be jealous is good, it's protecting your partnership. Uh, to be jealous is natural, you know. Why would I want the well being of this person, you know, that uh, it's my rival and they still my person, you know, my the, the, the woman I love or the man I love, you know? But as you do this practice, you know, it really works on the, on the egoic system that separates your well being from others. It's a Buddhist practice that, you know, the Dalai Lama used to practice with the Chinese, for example, you know, when they invited to Tibet, you know. Uh, it's a Buddhist practice that the Buddhists say it's good to practice with your so-called enemies because it really like uh, neutralizes the egoic system that uh, that separates your well-being from others. So I found it effective 
in working with jealousy. You can do this practice by yourself, in group, jealousy, in group. Uh, in this book, I'm talking more individually, but um, I think it's very good uh, to gather with other people, you know, experiencing similar challenges. The community dimension is also very, very important. Yeah. Um, so this word compersion, I think it was designed in the 70s because um, a group of people realised there was no uh, word which was the opposite in the English language to jealousy, right? Um, we yes. didn't have that word. And so I think the, the idea of compersion is the answer to everything if we can only put it into place. But it goes against, as you say, it sort of goes against our instincts in many ways, doesn't it? And compersion, just to uh, elaborate, and I'll do it probably pretty clumsily, but it's the, the opposite of jealousy where you actually take joy in seeing um, your partner enjoy other people's company in an intimate way, right? Exactly, exactly, exactly. And this comes from... And, you know, the more you practice, of course, if you are with a partner, that, and this is very important, you know, the, the, the strength and the trust and the deep bond between you two. Many couples open their couples prematurely sometimes uh, and could be challenging uh, or even counterproductive, uh, especially if there's a lot of challenges between them, you know, opening a couple could be a disaster. Uh, but uh, with this, like this very deep bond, this sense even a spiritual soul connection, this sense of like you want to work here for the long haul with the challenges, you know, and, like the typical bow of marriage, you know, would, would, would involve like, you know, we're here like, you know, uh, we don't know when will this end, you know, we're not <laughs> precognitive here, but we're kind of committed to each other for a time, you know, we're not going to leave you tomorrow, you know. <laughs> So if that's there, you know, if that's there, then you start realizing that the, the more you practice comparison, like uh, the, the more like one feel more secure in that, you know, and like for many people who experience that openness, uh, the fact that uh, your partner stays with someone and of course you can negotiate what kind of contact, you know, like it's affectionate, it's sexual, it's sexual, what kind of boundaries and different couples negotiate different things that feel comfortable to them and that's very important. Then uh, your partner comes back to you. And in my experience, what I have been doing that, like uh, uh, it was like, wow, I'm with this beautiful partner that also allows me to have this kind of sexual diversity with other people. It made me love her much more. <laughs> Why would I want to leave her? <laughs> right? so, so in a way, it can really strengthen, uh, paradoxically, the monogamous, the monogamous or the, the, the couple commitment between those two people, you know, and that without underestimating the many challenges that, that may arise. There is no relationship without challenges. Monogamous relationships have certain challenges, polyamorous, other challenges. It really depends what's really uh, attuned to your growth and the growth of your couple, what yeah. challenges you may want to pick. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, the idea, of, you do actually mention in, in the book that jealousy is seen in some quarters as a positive and even necessary emotion through evolution. It doesn't feel like that to me. It feels like a negative <laughs> It feels like a negative emotion. I, I mean, I like this idea that all of the emotions are okay and they're all part of your life and your journey. But jealousy does seem like a negative one to me. It makes me a smaller person when I've had those feelings um, yes. in, in my life. And so, I mean, but but it seems to me that medita and compersion and sympathetic joy, they are a practice. It's almost like transcendental meditation, reminding yourself of a certain affirmation every day, many times. Um, yes. Do you do that? And um, do you still feel jealousy? And, and how central is Buddhism? to your life in general do you have a practice daily yes very good uh i practiced buddhist for about 15 years uh, that was it feels like a previous life of mine um, but many of the principles and 
Buddhists kind of got internalized in many different ways, like mindfulness in many different ways. Uh, also, I practice shamanism, and I've had in touch with Christian, you know, mystical Christianity and other traditions. But um, but in any way, coming back to your question, like, uh, uh, yes, I have practiced that practice even with my last partner. Uh, last time I was in a relationship, uh, there was a situation in which uh, I knew she was with someone, and I was traveling in the Mediterranean. She was in California. It was that day. I could feel it. Uh, and uh, it was like some some wave coming through me, and I did that practice, uh, and it really helped me a lot. It really helped me a lot. And at the same time, also it's important to, as I mentioned in the book, uh, uh, sometimes we project this ghost on this other person, like someone who is there yes. to to predate on your woman or your man who wants to steal this person from you, you know. And of course, with that kind of projection, uh, we're gonna feel uncomfortable. Right, but um, but if we're assured by our partners that this person does not want to steal them, maybe it's a person who's also in love with someone else in an open relationship, and it's an encounter, and they want to explore something that actually you don't want to explore with your partner because you find it boring or unattractive, you know, and then uh, then it's much more easy to realize like. For me, at least, um, certain tendencies of like feeling my heart chakra contracting and feeling some negative emotion kind of like paved the way to a, a heart opening that uh, made me only not only love my partner but also appreciate this man that uh, that was loving well my partner. So this man was loving her well, and uh, and also was like so giving me an opportunity to work on certain tendencies that could be a bit negative. So that's like that was like a service. I was very grateful. Wow. I, I suppose it depends a little bit on the type of person as well. You sound like someone who constantly challenges yourself. But I think it's it's all about stepping stones. If you challenge yourself a little bit, that almost encourages you to challenge yourself more. Do you know what I mean? It's, uh, yes. it's all part of the process. Uh, absolutely. Yes. And that's also also why it's important also to... Uh, you know, I work with many couples who are um, either one or both of them want to open the relationship, but experience many challenges. And it's important also to to go gradual, you know, like uh, sometimes people take very radical steps, you know, that could be damaging for the relationship. You need to be very careful. It's a very delicate uh, process. Uh, it's not something you can be cavalier about. It's like, okay, now we're in an open relationship and just gonna have more mindfulness and consciously as possible. And of course, select uh, partners that are not gonna impose a threat in your partner. I mean, it's a whole it's a whole world, you know? It's not for everybody. In the same way that monogamy is not for everybody or other types of novogamy is not for everybody. So one of the main messages of the book is that uh, by opening this large spectrum of relational possibilities beyond the monopoly binary, people can really like find more their path and maybe co-create different paths that aren't even they're not even mapped out in the book you know um, but they can feel inspired it's like well this i'm living something that uh, this guy jorge ferrer is not even talking about but right. what i read here what i read here inspired me to articulate it even better and, and live it more consciously so that's my hope uh, for the book yeah amazing because i mean you do stress in the book that it's not a self-help publication but it, but it sounds as if you in your experience your advice is basically just to try for people to increase their awareness and and writing this book does it increase people's awareness because as i said i've been so closeted all of my life most of my life and i think that most people are and because you are so learned and because you are so aware of this subject you there maybe is an assumption that other people know about it too but i think that it's it's very non-mainstream still when you look at the world in general Yes, yes. It's becoming more and more mainstream 
polyamory is in more social media. It's, we call polyamory for beginners. You know, you see polyamory in TV shows of different kinds, of different ways. I hope that uh, by reading this book, many readers say they're both monogamous and polyamorous. They will feel less need to to look down at the other camp. They will feel more sympathetic. They will feel more understanding. They will feel that people have different dispositions, that there is no need to, to affirm your own relational identity at the expense of, of the other of the other people's relational identity. Yeah, and that's a great lesson because it, that goes beyond just intimacy and relationships, doesn't it? That's a way of being. That's just a positive way of being, of approaching people in your life. I would agree very strongly with that. Yeah, I, I, I'm so, totally with you. I, I, I want you to tell me about somebody who has inspired you through your life and why. Now, just from our conversation, there's some obvious people, but um, it could be a public figure or otherwise, but somebody who's been with you through your life who, you, who you've really drawn lots of inspiration from. Hmm. Oh, my God, so many people. <laughs> uh, so many people. Um, but, uh, you know, in, in, terms of, in terms of what we're talking about, because if we were talking more about more uh, my more academic work in transpersonal psychology, I would say definitely like Richard Turner has been one of my main mentors, you know, the author of Psyche and Cosmos, The Passion of the Western Mind. Richard Turner, very important author for me. But in the, in the sense, in the, in the art of relationships, uh, I would say that uh, uh, Ramon Alvarez and Marina Romero, who are not well known, uh, uh, they're more well known in Spain. And uh, they're a couple who, uh, you know, my first kind of um, open relationship happened through them. And they were an open relationship couple. And uh, they were highly evolved human beings, you know, very spiritually aware, emotionally intelligent. So meeting them for me was like, wow. Uh, I thought I was crazy, and finally I find other people who, who think the same or feel the same, and, and, and they're amazing, and I, I look up at them in some ways. So if this is a crazy club, I belong to a good club, <laughs> right? <laughs> so uh, so for me, that was a referent of people who are living open relationships in a very conscious way that had almost nothing to do with the way most people I met in California were living polyamory. For me, um, that's why I never feel identified with polyamory. Uh, I don't want to generalize, but I met many people in the, in California, like many men in particular, who polyamory was a spiritual rhetoric to do what they wanted in right. a narcissistic way. And, it, and it still, they were kind of monitoring their different women and not allowing their friends to come close to them. And it's like, wow, that's, that's a distortion of, mm. for me of this paradigm, right? Mm. So, of course, there is... Other people I met there, wonderful, like Wendy Omatic and other polyactivists who are like living this open relationships from their heart in a beautiful way. But uh, those two people, that couple, and we maintain a relationship with three of us for three years um, that ended because I became celibate. For, that's a different story. Wow. For three years, uh, something of my own process of uh, psycho-spiritual development. But uh, for three years, we live a very rich, uh, creative uh, relationship. Um, both Ramon and I were much more heterosexual excuse heterosexual so we didn't have sexual trio but we're both with the same woman for three years and we had other connections but she was like the one for both of us and between Ramon and I was so much love and like uh, there was never the experience of jealousy between us never uh, no wow no I'll tell you one thing and maybe well this will finish it's a little radical yes okay. is that okay Okay. Please, the more radical, the better. <laughs> Wait, and well, this will finish because I'll need to prepare for a... Absolutely, for a my friend, thank you. Yes, um, um, Ramon was uh, older than me, and uh, Marina was older than me, but I was younger. 
So when Marina and I started our relationship, we you know, were at the peak of our sexual passion. Ramon and her had been together for a number of years, you know. So the first time we traveled together, I found myself, uh, I found myself unconsciously looking for signs of this guy being jealous. <laughs> it was like, I just couldn't totally believe it, you know, that this guy was not jealous because <laughs> the energy between she and I was like so, so high, right? <laughs> Honeymoon. Right? Intense. So uh, at some point, this man, like uh, that, I love very much and I admire very much. He realizes, uh, he notices, and then he tells me, "Jorge, I'm noticing this. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, are you are you looking for something? I noticed looking at me. Is, is there something there? Do we need to talk?" I shared with him what was going on. I think that's what's going on. I, uh, part of me doesn't believe that there's not even a slight, a slice of jealousy in you because. And then he tells, "Well, I don't experience it, but I have a proposal for you." to change that and it's like okay like um today we're gonna travel through these towns in south of spain and uh let's look for an hotel uh and then we're gonna get two rooms and uh adjacent each other i want you to spend the night with marina it's a special time in her in her moon cycle it was like a very sacred time for her i want you to spend that tight time with her and um you know by the time we go after dinner to bed like if she wants of course if she's open to it you guys, uh, you know, uh, have sexual intercourse. And I want you to know that I'm going to be in the adjacent room, meditating, uh, very present to what's happening and supporting you fully, supporting what's happening from my heart with my heart open and my consciousness open. That changed this chip completely. And the whole relationship changed after that. And it's important to know, and this is also um, uh, maybe for the audience could be interesting, is like uh, some of those very deep chips they don't change with words. The unconscious reacts to ritual. The unconscious reacts to psychomagic, to, to actions that will impact. So that that kind of like small psychomagic act for me was very, very important. It really changed many chips that they kind of like they dissolve later. Thank you very much for this amazing, amazing uh, interview, uh, Oliver. Uh, I really enjoyed it and have like the best questions. The pleasure was all mine, Jorge, and it's my ambition to meet you in person so we can discuss for many more hours. It will happen. You have a wonderful day, my friend. Okay, very Thank well. Thank you so much. Take care. Ciao, ciao. Bye. Follow us on Twitter at Natural High Club or go straight to the website thenaturalhighclub.com and remember to subscribe to the Natural High podcast through whichever platform you're listening to get every new pod straight to your phone. The Natural High.